I have a bone to pick with most of you this morning. What is wrong with this section right here? I'm like, what is wrong? Is it, is it Justin? Is it Paul? Paul has a cold. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many of you have ever talked to somebody who's run a marathon? How many of you actually run a marathon? There's a few of you. Yeah. Jerry, your hand didn't go up with that. You didn't run a marathon, huh? Yeah, and I never guessed it. <laughs> Over the years, I have spoken with people who have trained to run a marathon, and it's fascinating to me for a couple reasons. One, I have no desire to do it. But it's fascinating to me to, to listen to people who have trained for it. And the, the second thing that I find so fascinating about it is, is the amount of miles one has to run in training to be able to do the 26.2 in a marathon. I don't know if you realize this, but most plans for the beginner, for someone who's just like sets out, and I don't know what kind of person has this in their mind, but it's not this kind of guy. You know, the kind of guy who sets out and says, you know what, I think this is the year I'm going to run a marathon. This is the year I'm going to eat more donuts, okay? This is the year I'm going to eat more donuts. To do this, most of the plans last 12 to 20 weeks, three to five months. And, and to, to, for the beginner, they estimate that you have to get in 50 miles for at least four months straight. Like, that just sounds wrong, doesn't it? 50 miles in the four months leading up to the race. So that's like every seven to ten days, then, you have to do what they call the long run. Like, anything that is the long run is not for me. The long run is considered 10 to 15 miles. And the longest run you ever do in preparing for that marathon is you're going to do one of 20 miles. And I'm like, wait, you're supposed to run 26, right? And so what they say is, is that the preparation you go through helps you to get through the last six miles. Does that sound like the Christian life to any of you? Does that, does, that sound, does that sound like the race that we're called to run? Joseph's life's trajectory has been much like this, as we've been following Joseph, and we continue on with his life here in Genesis 40. And, and, and I think of it this way, God, who is the all-wise trainer, is preparing him for a big task. In many ways, he's preparing him for greatness, but Joseph doesn't feel very great. Joseph hasn't been told what he's being prepared for. Joseph is in now when we find him, he's in, he's in the prison, and Joseph is, is much like you and I, I think, in this regard. He's there in the prison, and he thinks, this is, this is what it's come to, and this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. And yet God is at work preparing him. Just like you and I have no idea what the next hour holds, much less what the future holds. We have no idea for what God has prepared for us. You know, for you and me, if you're the child of God, it's guaranteed that one day we will end up in His presence. That's pretty glorious, don't you think? 
We're guaranteed that we'll be in His presence. We're promised strength and wisdom if we seek it. And ultimately, we're promised the glory of heaven. But I think, like many other times, when we come to the Word of God, we tend to glamorize these accounts. We tend to, we tend to glamorize Genesis chapter 40, and we think to ourselves, well, Joseph, you know, he had to do a little time, and, and, and he, had to, he had to interpret a couple dreams, and then, you know, all of a sudden, he's this, like, king of the world. And we don't understand that, that there's a lot of pain involved here. And there's a, there's a lot of real life stuff that relates to you and I. So this morning, we're going to read Genesis chapter 40. If you've got a copy of God's Word, join me there. Paper or digital. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God, please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me. And on that vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it bloss- its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three, da- three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also have had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh. Think about it this way. It's a cornucopia of donuts and brownies and cookies and bread, okay? But the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree And the birds will eat the flesh from you. And now he's regretting asking to get his dream interpreted. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. He placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Let's pray this morning. Father, you tell us that your word, not man's word, your word, 
your holy word, your breathed out word to us. It's a lamp to our feet and it's a light to our path. We live in a dark world and we need something to light the way for us. We need something to, to make the way plain. And so this morning, we come as those who, who need direction for, for our lives. We come as those who, who need to clearly say, see what you have prepared and we need you to illuminate our path. So we ask that you would do so this morning by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We see some interesting words at the beginning of this chapter. Go back with me to verse 1. Moses, as he's recounting this, he sets this up by saying this, sometime after this. And, and this begins another set of circumstances that Joseph is going to have to deal with. But, but he says, sometime after this. I don't know, you ever, when you're reading your Bible and you read that, you're like, what do you mean by sometime after this? Are we talking days? Are we talking weeks, months, years? What are we talking here? Well, we know a little bit if we just do a little math here. I know some of you, that's really a struggle, but we just need to do a little math here. And what we know from this is that this has been 11 years since Joseph has been sent into slavery. He's 28 years old. We don't know how much time that he spent between Potiphar and the prison, but we know this, he's 28 years old because he's got to wait two more years till he's out of the prison, and at that time, when he's made the second highest in command of all of Egypt, he's 30 years old. 28 years old. And so for, for all of his adult life, for the most part of his adult life, he has been nothing but a prisoner or a slave, Right? And so, in those 11 years, he's had many unique circumstances, right? He's had the ability to serve in a high-ranking official in the, in the Egyptian government. He's had the opportunity to serve in his house, so much so, he was such a good servant in this house that, that he's placed in charge of everything there, and that whenever the, his boss isn't home, he's the one in charge, and he has the power and the authority to do, and to do whatever he wants to do, and all who are in that house basically have to listen to him. And he has that snatched away in a heartbeat, doesn't he? And now we find him in the prison. And when we last left him in verse 23 of chapter 39, he has risen again in this prison. Okay? He's risen again to this place where, where now he's in charge. And, and, and pretty much whoever's running this prison trusts him to carry out what needs to be done. And Moses sets this all up with some time after this. Sometime after this. What's interesting is, and it should have jogged your memory, is that when we read in verse 3 that he puts him in the house, or it puts him in the custody of the house of who? What does your Bible say there in verse 3? Captain of the guard. Have we seen that before in Genesis? Let me refresh your memory. Go back a page or two to Genesis chapter 37. And at the end of chapter 37, in verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Isn't it interesting 
Now, I know Potiphar probably could have been replaced by now, but Potiphar is just a, like Pharaoh is a name, it's a title, it's, it's, we call somebody king, we call, in, in, in Egypt they call somebody Pharaoh, Potiphar is another title as well, okay? And isn't it interesting that most likely God has weaved the circumstances in Joseph's life that again he gets to interact with Potiphar? Again, he gets to interact with Potiphar. And, 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 it's, and it's interesting to me that God makes no mistakes about the people that he puts across our path. And, and sometimes we think it's really random that we encounter somebody or that, that somebody shows up in town whenever, you know, that we haven't seen for a while. And we think, man, that's just really weird that that happened. Or is it that we have a God who loves us enough to control the events of our life to the point where he brings people into our lives exactly when we need them? You tell me. If it's all about random chance, then we have no hope, Right? But here the captain of the guard directs Joseph to attend to these two men. And this is why I do think it's the same Potiphar. Remember when we saw Potiphar and, and he was mad with his wife? Whenever It wasn't just mad because, because she, had, she had said that, you know, you brought this guy in the house. I think he's mad with his wife because he doesn't trust his wife. And now... Joseph is given this important responsibility there in the jail. You don't get much higher up in the Egyptian government in terms of responsibility other than the guys who like, are responsible for feeding the Pharaoh, right? Okay, so, so th these are trusted guys. These are important guys. And now they're, they're in the prison. Moses, in our English word, um, in verse 1, says they committed an offense. Really, probably what happened is, is Pharaoh found out somebody in his household was being treasonous. They were after him. And if you're going to commit treason and you're going to try and wipe out the king, what better way than to poison his food or his drink, right? So he's not sure which one, but he knows that one of the two are involved in this. And so he has to, he has to put them both in prison until he can get this sorted out. And so another set of just unique circumstances, and for 11 years, really for all of Joseph's life, God has been putting him exactly where he wants him to be. And, and for Joseph's take on it, and I remind us again, Joseph's perspective is he has been always in the wrong place at the wrong time, hasn't he? He showed up whenever his brothers were taking care of sheep, and he just showed up at the wrong time, and he showed up at the wrong place. When, when he was in Potiphar's house, and, and, and he happened to be alone in the house with Potiphar's wife, it was the wrong place at the wrong time. And again, you might be tempted to think, wrong place, wrong time. He's never getting out of this jail. I want you to think about that. Some of you in this room aren't even old enough to do this, but think 11 years back. Think 11 years back in your life. For some of you, you're old enough, it's just a blip, I know. But for most of us, 11 years is a long time. Think back where you were 11 years. Think about what you looked like when you looked in the mirror. No, don't do that. That's depressing, right? But think about waiting for something for 11 years. 
waiting for God to do something, waiting, waiting for just a glimmer of hope, waiting, waiting for, for something to happen good to you when it seems like only negative stuff has been happening to you. And that's where Joseph is right now. And Joseph has something that you and I don't have. If we'll just open our Bibles, we will be able to find promise after promise after promise after promise where God says that, that there, will be, there will be blessing to those who endure. There will be good things to come to those who wait on the Lord. We have that recorded for us. Joseph has none of that written down for him. Do you realize what a blessing it is that you have God's Word? And yet, too often, we go to the Psalms when we need some refreshment, and we read the Psalms, and, and we get real sniveling with God. I know it's true, God, but it's not really true for me. It's true for the other people. It's true for the other Christians that you love, but it's not true for me because it's not happening for me. And so here's Joseph in this prison waiting on the Lord. It's interesting. Someone has said, that waiting requires us to pause and to consider our own inadequacy and God's all-sufficiency. You know, if we had the power to change things, we would do it, wouldn't we? And I think sometimes God makes us intentionally wait just to point out to us how inadequate we are to affect change. That writer went on to say this, not waiting is actually forfeiting the blessing of seeing God at work. Have you ever waited and see God do an amazing thing? Elizabeth Elliot, she had to wait on the Lord. She wrote this. Waiting on God requires the willingness to bear uncertainty, to carry within oneself the unanswered question and lifting that question with a heart to God about whenever it intrudes in one's thought. In other words, waiting means this. I am waiting to have a question answered. I'm waiting for God to solve something for me. And every time that I'm tempted to doubt Him, I'm willing to take it to Him. I like how she puts it. It intrudes on one's thoughts. <laughs> Sometimes, and maybe you're this way this morning, we don't like to be reminded that we're waiting on the Lord. Because it's painful. It's painful. So here Joseph is in this another set of unique circumstances, and two guys show up who have dreams. It's really interesting, and I thought I'd take a couple minutes this morning and just talk about dreams. You ever think about dreams? And already in the book of Genesis, we have seen dreams be a big part, haven't we? In Joseph's life, dreams have been a big part. After all, dreams are what played a big part into getting Joseph where he's at right now, right? The fact that he had dreams and he couldn't keep his mouth shut about them, right? And when you read Christian literature and you talk to people, there seems to be a lot of anecdotal support for God's use of dreams today, right? There seems to be a lot of it. I'm just going to be very careful with this, and I'm going to just be honest with you. I'm cautious about that. And here's why. In the Word of God, much like with miracles, you only find miracles limited in certain places in the Word of God. You only find dreams in certain, emphasized in certain places in history. Three, to be specific. One here, 
in, in Genesis with the patriarchs, and, and a lot of them are centered around Joseph, right? So you find that in Genesis. The next place you find them is in the book of Daniel, right? Daniel was involved in interpreting dreams as well. He's involved in, 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 in the interpretation of dreams, and he himself has dreams. And then you find them in the book of Matthew, and you find them in conjunction with the Lord's birth. Remember? You know, you know Joseph dreams a dream, and, and God speaks to him in this dream. You also find them in the book of Matthew at the end, in conjunction with the Lord's death. Pilate's wife has a dream, right? Now, I don't want to confuse these with visions. Visions are what happens when someone was awake. In Acts chapter 10, we have an example of that. Peter is sitting on the porch of his house, and God literally brings the sheet down from heaven. He's not asleep. He's just having a vision as he's just sitting there in the middle of the day. And so we have to wonder about this. I think it's fair to say dreams are a window into our subconscious. Like, I've had some of the weirdest dreams about some of you. I pray they don't come true. I've had dreams about some of you, like right now, during this time when I'm preaching, getting up and throwing stuff at me. And I noticed that there were tomatoes out on the table in the foyer. I'm a little concerned. Donuts too, yes. They could be a window in our subconscious, or it could be the fact that we just ate too much pizza before we went to bed, too. In other words, dreams can't really be definitive, can they? Which is okay, because if you and I really want to know that what God is surely saying to us, we have a sure word. We don't need a dream. We don't need a dream. You say, well, PD, it doesn't speak to my specific situation. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. It really does. So I don't know about all the dreams and all the reports about dreams that you hear about, but I would just say to all of us, be very cautious. Be very cautious. At any rate, back to Genesis chapter 40, both the cupbearer and the baker dream a dream. And what's interesting is, and we learn a little bit about Joseph in this in verse 7, do you see the empathy in Joseph as he approaches them? Here's this guy who's unjustly imprisoned, and he's, now he's having to serve, and, and, and I, I just know what I would be like. Oh, so you want me to wait hand and foot on these really pompous windbags who expect everything to have done for them? Anybody else with me in that? You want me to serve, you want me to serve these guys who are very self-important? Look at verse 7. In verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And so he asked them, why are your faces downcast today? Like, what's going on? What can, what can, I, what can I do? And in verse 8, Moses puts a big nugget in there for us. Joseph acknowledges something there. He says, they say, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Implying, I don't know what the answer is, but I have a God who does know the answer. I don't know what the answer is, but I have a God. And, 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 and what he's doing here, 
What he's doing here is actually a statement of faith. And you say, why do you say that, PD? Who had dreams in his life some 11 years before this? Who had dreams? Joseph did. And do you know what Joseph is saying to these guys? It's a statement of faith. He's saying this. Dreams belong to God, and, and, and their interpretation belongs to God. And I had a dream. He's not saying this to them, but he's thinking in his mind, I had a dream, and I know that one day God is going to elevate me out of here because he told me in a dream. You say, well, what does that mean for me today? Because you just cautioned me about dreams. You don't need a dream. You have God's word, and he's told you where you all end up, hasn't he? Church, has he told you where you're going to end up? Yeah, and, and so we have to endure through this life, don't we? Just like Joseph had to endure until his time came, you and I have to endure, and that's really, really hard because we live in a really wicked place, and there's a lot of wicked people, and there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of suffering, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and we're tempted to give up, and I would say to you, hold on to the Word of God, just like Joseph held on to his dream. Hold on to the Word of God. This all ends really good for the children of God. Do you believe that? You don't believe it by the way you responded. Do you believe that this ends in a good place? The faith of a child, I love it. The loudest voice in the room. We could learn a lesson. You know, it was also, it was also a risky statement to make. You say, how do you know it was a risky statement to make? Well, here's how I know it was a risky statement to make. The Egyptians prided themselves on the science, and I'm not even going to pronounce the word because I stumbled in my office like 25 times. It's a, it's a big, long word. You can Google it, okay? Just don't do it now, especially if you have your phone turned on like, and ask it to read it because then we'll all hear it. The Egyptians prided themselves on the ability to interpret dreams. It was a part of their pagan religion. And what Joseph is saying here to two high-ranking officials who by their very position have to worship Pharaoh as a god, okay, along with the plethora of the other gods that are out there for them to worship, what, what he is saying is, yeah, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that you couldn't get your dreams interpreted because only God himself, Yahweh, the one true God, knows the answer to these dreams, that could have been off with his head. And the Egyptians really believed that, that their sorcerers, that their magicians could, could answer the situation. Which is another little tidbit. Let me just throw this in here since I'm throwing tidbits in. We live in a world that thinks that they can answer all the issues of life, don't they? If you will, the sorcerers and the magicians of our world really think they have all the answers. And Joseph clearly says, no, you don't have the answers. My God has the answers. It's no different than you and I having to say, no, you don't have the answers, Fox News. The Bible does. It's no different than saying, no, you so-called scientists, you don't have the answers. God's words does. And what's interesting is he interprets the dreams, doesn't he? And he throws in this statement. Did you catch it there? In verse 14. 
Now, keep in mind, Joseph, Joseph understands that God does work through dreams, and he's making this statement of faith, but what does he say? Okay, maybe this is the way that God is going to bring me out of here. Little does he know it really is the way he's going to do it. God's going to use another dream. But, but he's saying, okay, maybe this is the way out. And so in verse 14, he says, only remember me. Do you catch the desperation there? <laughs> just, just remember me, man. All I'm asking is when you get out and everything is back to normal, that you would please remember a brother who's still left here in the jail. And he makes his justification. I, I was stolen out of the land where I came from, and I have done nothing here since I've been here that, that would require me to be in this place, place right now. Like, anybody in law enforcement will tell you, anybody who's ever busted, they never did anything wrong, right? And so Joseph, this is, this is like probably falling on deaf ears. Man, I didn't deserve it. It's the man. He did it to me. No. And so the dreams come true. What's interesting is, how many of you ever heard of a thing called the Rosetta Stone? You ever heard of that thing? On the Rosetta Stone, it records this, this custom that the Pharaoh on his birthday had a custom of releasing political prisoners. Hmm. You can trust God's word. This is not just a fairy tale account. This is, this is literally backed up by history. So on his birthday, Verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of his chief cupbearer and the head of his chief baker among his servants. This stuff is happening. It's coming true. Now, I want you to think about Joseph when this happens. Joseph is taking care of these guys for the next two days, right? Now, on the morning of the third day, he wakes up and he's like, yeah, I'm going to go in and serve these guys, but today's the day. Today's go time because I really believe what God says. And sure enough, maybe after he serves them breakfast, they, 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 all, they, they hear the, 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 the entourage of Pharaoh's soldiers coming down the hallway, and, and they come, and they say, they say to him, Baker, cupbearer, it's time. You're being freed, right? You're, you're going to show up at the king's birthday party. And in Joseph's mind, he's like, it's happening it's happening. This is the first step to me getting out of here. And he's thinking to himself, certainly, certainly, certainly the cupbearer is going to put a good word in for me, right? After all, I told him what's going to happen. He's going to get out and he's going to be like, the most amazing thing happened, Pharaoh. Joseph still has some long mileage to run, though. He's still got some long mileage to run. And one of the lessons that Joseph has to learn is something you and I have to learn. Sometimes when we put our hopes in man, we're going to be disappointed. Sometimes when we put our hopes in man, we're going to be disappointed. But we can always completely trust our faithful, loving, and good Heavenly Father. And so... Moses records this at verse 23, and, 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 and I should point out, when Joseph interpreted the dreams, in verse 19, when he's, talking, when he's talking to the baker, and he says, lift up your head 
and then in, in my Bible, it has like a slash mark, and then it says, from you, exclamation point, another slash mark. Literally what he's saying is, you're going to be beheaded. Oh, your head's going to be lifted up all right. And it happens just as Joseph interprets it. Yet, verse 23, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. And I have to ask myself, how many times can a guy get kicked before he just finally gives up? Right? How many times can, can these unique circumstances seem to like, okay, maybe something good's going to come out of this, and every time, disappointment, disappointment, disappointment. And then I think of James chapter 1. Let's go to James chapter 1. I haven't brought this passage to bear yet in the life of Joseph, but I think this is the perfect time. James chapter 1. James tells us his audience to the 12 tribes in verse 1 in the dispersion. Okay? You may not understand what that word dispersion means, but here's, here's what James is saying. James being the pastor of, of First Community Church of Jerusalem, probably only Community Church of Jerusalem, okay? the Community Church in Jerusalem, James being the pastor has seen a big exodus out of his church because the heat has been turned up on Christians in Jerusalem. And so they've been dispersed. And they're all over the place. And James, having that pastor's heart, that shepherd's heart, is writing to them. And he's, and he's writing to encourage them in their faith. He's writing to make sure that they are firm in their faith. He's writing to make sure that they are really truly believers. And the first words out of his mouth after he says greetings, look at verse 2. You looking at it? Yeah, that's really encouraging, James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The word count means to literally sit down and, and, and to make an evaluation. It's not, it's not something like you're counting the number of people in a room or something like that. You know, no, no, what he's saying is you sit down and you make an evaluation. And that's really what has to happen in our lives. Because you and I encounter trials and temptations and tests repeatedly. Do we not? Church, I know it's Labor Day weekend. Wake up. Do you encounter trials? And what we're tempted to do is just sit down and complain about them. Or if we're really spiritual, we'll complain in a psalm kind of way to God about it. Right? And James is advocating for something different. He's saying sit down and literally count the cost and evaluate what's going on here. And in doing so, make sure that you choose joy in them. Do you realize in every test you face, you have a choice? And on one side, you can choose to try to, to, to dismiss it. You can choose to try to, 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 to handle it in your own strength. You can choose to kind of just like forget about it. You can choose to just walk away from the Lord. Or you can choose joy. Like, oh, PD, that's so, that's so fuzzy and heartwarming. I'm just going to choose joy. The choice of joy is the hard choice. Let, let me say it again. The choice of joy is the hard choice. It's easier to walk away. 
Choosing joy is the hard thing here, to rejoice in the trial. And, and, but he tells us why we should do it. Look at verse 3, because you know. And I think that's the problem. For all our supposed smartness, for all of our deep theology, for all of the stuff, oh, I can explain to you the doctrine of whatever, backwards, forwards, we don't know from life experience that the testing of our faith produces patience and endurance. We don't know that. Yeah, you can quote me all kinds of Bible verses and you can impress me and make me think that you're really a super Christian. You can explain the difference between justification and sanctification, but do you know, do you know in your heart that when God's testing you, He is making you a better person? Because I don't care how much theology you know. Say, PD, you're a pastor, you're supposed to care. I do care. I'm just trying to make a point here. Do you know? Or do you go through life complaining and saying that your God is small? Because the world is watching. Your family may be watching. Your church family may be watching. And how you and I respond to trial says a lot about how big we think God is. And that endurance goes on to produce maturity. Do you see it there in verse 4? It produces maturity. And this is what's happening in Joseph's life. Joseph is literally growing up beyond his years. You think about it. You think about it. Well, maybe this isn't a good illustration, but think about this. Would you hire a 30-year-old man to run our country? I, we might. We might be better off, actually. It's not a great, it's not a great illustration. But are 30-year-old men ready to, ready to really lead? In some ways, yes, but in many ways, no. And this 30-year-old guy is about to be the second most powerful man in the world at his time. And you know how he got there? Because God had trained him to be that. God had trained him to be that. And that's what's happening here. He's going to ask Joseph to handle a huge responsibility. And so an all-wise God knows this. And, and, and you and I may complain in our trials, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Oh, God, please make it stop. And in doing so, we're discounting the fact that God is at work to do what only God can do to prepare us for something. Nobody's been ever this sad in their marriage. No one has ever had to deal with this kind of grief. No one is, and we begin to think this way, and we, we forget that we have a very big God. You see, God is big enough to accomplish both things that he says in Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And, and what, what Paul is trying to connect us to there in Romans 8, 28 is, yes, God is going to accomplish his glory. Do you believe that? That God's going to accomplish his glory? 
You believe that in the future. You believe that about one day you're going to end up in heaven and, and God's going to accomplish his glory. But do you believe that God's going to accomplish his glory today in the world that we live in? Do you believe that he's going to accomplish it tomorrow? Do you believe that he's going to accomplish it if Joe Biden gets in office for another four years? God forbid. Do you believe that? Church, do you believe that? That he's going to accomplish his glory? Then live like it. Then live like it. If God's going to really accomplish his glory, then, 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 then whatever I do for his sake, it's not going to fail. And on top of that, all things work together for good for those who love God. You see, our God is so big that he accomplishes what seems as humanly impossible, and he does it for our good and his glory every time. And we need that perspective, dear one. We need that perspective. And so, whatever your week holds this week, Whatever circumstances that you really are uncomfortable in right now, or maybe even more than uncomfortable, that you are hurting, that you're a part of these circumstances, whatever those circumstances are, if you are the child of God, you can trust in two things. God's going to accomplish his glory, and two, it's going to be for my good. And here's the thing, Joseph didn't have Romans 8.28, did he? But he had a Romans 8.28 mindset, didn't he? And so this is what we learn from Genesis chapter 40 this week. Father, none of us would choose trials. We wouldn't choose to be tested. We wouldn't choose to go through difficult circumstances. We wouldn't choose grief. We wouldn't choose pain. We, we, we wouldn't choose to go out and, and, and run all that running to prepare for the marathon that you've called us to. But as a good and loving God, you have ordained that we should do it. Not just so that you look good, because you will look good in it, but it's also for our good. I'm impressed by this thought, Father. We don't need a different view of the trials. We just need a better view of who you are. And I pray this week that you would enlarge our vision of who you are enlarge our understanding of who you are so that we can walk through these trials and see them accomplish your purpose in our life i pray in jesus name amen